Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for joining me, Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss today's episode entitled, Georgia's Opens First Prison Charter Schools and the Aftermath of the Atlanta Public School Cheating Scandal. I chose to develop both of these stories in one so that one would understand the importance and significance of public education versus charter school education, but more importantly, that where you have a group of educators who have been committed to and or obligated to teaching students, that when those students are victims of cheating and other unethical and otherwise illegal acts on the part of their education system, public or otherwise, that those individuals are destined for the penitentiary as such, will eventually have to attain their high school diplomas in such settings. So allow me, please, to start with the opening of a prison charter school. While I commend the state of Georgia for its perceived efforts in addressing criminal justice reform, some of the concerns that I have about these programs include but are not limited to are we placing too much emphasis on addressing the needs and the concerns of the inmates as opposed to engaging in practices, policies, and procedures that target prevention and intervention to avoid individuals ever entering the system. And this is very important when you tie in the show that I did on the unconstitutional laws that exist in the criminal justice area for the state of Georgia. There are five that we've named in the previous show, but we found about 14 others. So when individuals are being subject to arrest, detention, and ultimately conviction for laws that the state of Georgia General Assembly know or have reason to know are unconstitutional and are vague and ambiguous and otherwise subjecting certain individuals, particularly those who would have to rely on public defense, who would not otherwise have the time, money, or resources to develop cases on constitutional challenges and get these convictions overturned, that those individuals suffer and as such will be the victims of unnecessary incarceration. So again, I applaud the ability to bring an education system into the prison, but look at it this way. This is not really the first or any new news. States like New York, New Jersey, California, for decades in the 70s and the early 80s had programs and services targeted and geared toward high school diplomas as well as pursuing college degrees in school. You would think that while we have online programs and services for colleges and universities readily available, that states would have then taken advantage of these services, but they did not. So, yes, we now have individuals, 19 in all, that graduated and completed Arendelle's Prison, which is a maximum security for women and juveniles who are going to eventually be tried as an adult or who have been convicted, excuse me, as adults, and they will cross the yard, as we call it. And Arendelle is generally one of the first stops that we put those individuals in when they turn age 17. But one of the things that concerned me is, 
two or three of the 19 individuals who completed the high school diploma program and quote-unquote graduated are lifers, individuals who are sentenced to life. One, to my best knowledge and belief, for murder, life without parole. So other than a personal satisfaction of completing a high school diploma and quote-unquote graduating, there's no real benefit, if you will, to this individual taking advantage of the program because my thought was the program is supposed to target, quote-unquote, recidivists, to prevent these individuals from engaging in recidivism upon reentry. So if you're using taxpayer dollars to give lifers a high school diploma, are you really reforming the, ju the justice system? We'll be back. Joining me, Sherry, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss today's episode, Georgia Open's first prison charter school and the aftermath of the Atlanta public school cheating scandal. At the break, I asked the question, are we really committed to reforming the criminal justice system by allowing and or authorizing individuals accused of the seven deadly sins, particularly murder, lifers, or individuals convicted and sentenced to life without parole to take these classes? No, we're not. We're not reforming. The purpose of reform is not merely to give individuals incarcerated a quote-unquote opportunity to complete a diploma that will not benefit society, but rather to put together programs and services that will reduce recidivism, that is repeat offenders, to, to be able to provide programs and services that are useful. So where I read that some of the individuals who completed the program and Arendelle a theological majors, quote-unquote, how is that going to benefit society? What employment opportunities are going to be readily available for these individuals? Again, it is a threat to national security to have a disappearance of women and girls. These are the individuals that bear forth fruit and produce the next generation. And if we're taking these individuals who will be future members of the U.S. military, future doctors, lawyers, educators, scientists, et cetera, and we are subjecting them to incarceration because we do not have programs and services geared for prevention and intervention. How then are we reforming the criminal justice industry? We're not. All we're really doing is adding to the privatization of the prison industrial complex because these charter schools are generally privatized institutions or programs, and somebody is receiving taxpayer dollars to run them. In addition to that, even where these charter programs are not privatized, they are receiving financial benefits from taxpayer dollars. That is to start a program and a service that will provide them with teachers and administrators when, if we give them the skills that they need in regular public schools and we implement, orchestrate, design, and deploy programs and services that prevent individuals from ever entering the criminal justice system, then and only then do we say that we're reforming. I commend the governor for the ban the box executive order, but the reality of that is after he did that, what did the state agencies in Georgia do? They went from not being able to ask if you've ever been arrested or convicted, to simply just saying when you complete this application, you're also authorizing us to do a criminal background check anyway. So if we're really committed to giving these individuals who would be reentering society a second chance, if you will, then it would require 
that no state agency, because that's who he can govern and control, would be authorized not merely to ask have you been arrested or convicted, but moreover not pull a criminal justice, a criminal background check until such time that that individual has at least had the opportunity to be interviewed. Because if you say that you can pull a criminal background check as soon as I make application, then you're going to know that the person's arrested whether they have a box to band or not, right? So why not say we're going to allow for these individuals to make application and based on his or her credentials and or meet the requirements to enable them to receive an interview, then for that second tier you can pull a background. Now, here's the thing. I am an avid. If you've been accused of the seven deadly sins, people need to know that. Murder, child molestation, armed robbery, people do need to know that. The fact of the matter is the majority of the individuals convicted of crimes, not just in the United States, but nationwide, according to the United States Department and the Bureau of Statistics, is that they're nonviolent offenders. Most individuals have nonviolent and or drug offenses. Therefore, if you are accused and or convicted of one of the seven deadly sins, I do believe that's a matter of public concern. And as such, public policy should require that you report that. I want to know if somebody's been convicted of murder, child molestation, rape, armed robbery, yeah, kidnapping. I want to know that if I'm an, I am an employer. However, absent those offenses, I don't believe that a criminal background should be pulled on individuals who are making application for employment opportunities if we are truly committed to reform. If I believe, like the Fair Debt Credit Practices Act through the Federal Trade Commission and the Fair Credit Reporting Act, that individuals who have, in fact, been convicted of a felony, that it remains on their record for seven years. After that, unless it's a seven deadly sins, one of the seven deadly sins, it would immediately be in the race. As though it never, ever happened. That's reform. Such that if an individual who has not committed one of the seven deadly sins but has otherwise committed a felony has gone seven years from the date of his or her completed sentence and has had no additional reoffenses, that original charge should be dropped from their NCIC, GCIC, and or the Feds Bureau. They should not have to report that it ever transpired, and more importantly, they should not ever have to look back. If they have been convicted of a misdemeanor offense, since the statute of limitations on a felony is seven years and a misdemeanor is two, then that misdemeanor should automatically, after having completed his or her sentence two years from that date, automatically be erased, not merely restricted, but erased as though it never happened and they should never have to report it. It is akin to the fair credit reporting, wherein after seven years, a person's credit is erased as though it never happened. Bankruptcies, seven to 10 years, erased. And after two years for a bankruptcy being discharged, two years from that date, Individuals can apply for credit again, have a refresh or fresh start programs available for them. Why aren't we doing the same for individuals accused of and convicted of misdemeanors and felonies? If we are truly committed to reform, then that would be the angle. On my website at www.thelawmobile.net, thelawmobile.net, we have 
what the different states around the country are doing with regard to reporting arrest and conviction. And it is amazing the information that is readily made available that can aid states like Georgia at enacting legislation that truly is designed and or can really be used to address reform, but more importantly, to address recidivism. We'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Sherry, on Live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode, Georgia Opened First Prison Charter School and the aftermath of the Atlanta public school cheating scandal. Allow me to address the latter. Several months ago, many of us are aware that in April that several Atlanta public school teachers, now deemed the most disgraced school teachers in the United States, were convicted of felonies for aiding and abetting and or partaking in cheating that was administered through standardized testing. Many of these schools reap financial gains because people are wondering why they got so many years. These school districts were receiving financial benefits, federal and state, based upon academic performance of these standardized testing scores. So when these teachers were aiding their students in cheating and or actually not aiding the students per se because the students didn't know that they were being victims of a cheating scandal, but when they were engaged in these cheating scandals, they in fact were reaping financial gains from federal and state. Tie that in to a program that the governor is trying to propose that will allow for him to take over school districts, and then I come to this. What is the aftermath of the Atlanta public school cheating scandal as it pertains to inmates? When you have students who are benefactors or beneficiaries of social promotion, you will eventually have that student meet its maker in the sense that they will end up facing reality, that they're not going to be able to succeed in the real world. And what those individuals will be more likely to do is to engage in criminality to survive. So where you have school districts like the Atlanta Public School, where those teachers, and we only hit not even the tip of the iceberg because it's an institutionalized and a systemic problem that really was not fully addressed in its totality, even with the new superintendent. And we saw that by a story that was covered by the Atlanta Journal and Constitution that made the front page concerning a high school principal that two months later was accused of knowing and or participating in changing grades of several students. So we know the problem is systemic. When you have that, you eventually are preparing a generation of criminals to allow for these individuals to eventually have to complete their academic studies beyond the wall in a prison setting. I have a problem with that. It is my understanding from my review of information that the governor will be taking over several school districts eventually, and I hope that Atlanta Public School will be one of them. I don't know if the reason why Mayor Kasim Reed has been so quiet concerning the cheating scandal, and the verdicts that were handed down by a jury, not simply Judge Baxter, 
whether or not it is because they know it might be inevitable or if it's a wait-and-see game. The mayor has been very vocal on several issues that affect directly or indirectly anything dealing with Atlanta, but has been very quiet, with all due respect, as it pertains to the Atlanta public cheating scandal. If, in fact, the governor intends on taking over the Atlanta school district, it would be to the advantage of thousands of young African Americans who are victims of a very poor education system and one that has not been properly monitored over the, the last several years. We see that when we examine when the investigation for the cheating began in 2005, such that over almost a decade, the pattern and practice of institutionalized and systemic cheating did not change. Now, when you have that, you again prepare a generation of criminals because somebody one day somehow along the way realizes they are not able to read or write and or engage in basic vocational skills deemed necessary to be contributors to society. And when you're not a contributor to society, you eventually become a taker. And when you are a taker, you become subject to incarceration. What then do we do to prevent and intervene now so that we don't need to provide educational services or focus, if you will, on providing educational services to inmates? There is a need for it, yes. For but my big question is how do we prevent them from entering the system to start with? That, to me, is as much part of reform as anything else. When you have laws that are unconstitutional, vague and ambiguous, or void for vagueness, when you have where you make it so easy for a woman to go to a court pursuant to OCGA 17.4 and 40 and take out an abandonment warrant and say, this is my quote-unquote baby daddy, when you don't even have DNA tests to prove it, and you slept with God only knows how many men, and you don't know who the father of your child is, and so he has to be guilty before proven innocent. He has to be arrested and incarcerated, then take a DNA test to find out he's not the father of the child. But the damage is already done because now he has a criminal record. What then, Governor, do we do for those individuals who are falsely and wrongfully accused? Why must they keep that on their record? Why not allow for a law that says if you've been wrongfully accused and the charge is dismissed, not merely subject to an expungement or restriction, eradication. You never have to report the arrest. You never have to acknowledge that you've gone through the system. That young man and the thousands of him that exist in the state of Georgia, those individuals will have the opportunity to go forward with their life. They should never have to be in the state that they have to explain that they was arrested and falsely accused and had to take a DNA test. And then based on that DNA test, because guess what? They're still giving TMI. That's still too much information to give to an employer. Well, did you ever have sex with the woman to start with? And then they look at the character. And association brings about a simulation. Then we blame that person, and they're victimized again for being placed in that stead from the start. So if we're truly committed to reform, there are a lot of other things, with all due respect, that we need to be doing that prevents and intervenes. And until we get to that level, we're really not doing anything. We're really not. It sounds good to say, oh, we've got 19 inmates who graduated in Arendelle, and now we're extending the program to a male prison. 
But then you go deeper and you say, well, these are lifers. These are individuals who got seven deadly sins, one of them, armed robbery, kidnapping. So the fact of the matter is who's going to hire that segment of society anyway, with or without, although we will. So if we're committed, then we have to implement and then enact legislation that is enforceable, not arbitrary and discriminatorily, but we have to be able to put things in effect that really actually will do what we say is designed to do. So if you have a person who's been convicted of a felony, other than the seven deadly sins, and he or she has successfully completed their prison term and, it's, and their sentence, and it's seven years later, it should either automatically, just like the credit bureaus, be erased from their record. Two years with a misdemeanor, erased from their record. And they didn't have to ban the box because they never have to report it. That, Honorable Governor Nathan Deal and the General Assembly and the judicial system, that is reform. And if we're willing to allow individuals to knowingly and or inadvertently acquire millions of dollars in debt and then have it erased just like that, how much more for an individual who may have been convicted for taking $20 as a theft and has a record, or who may have, as a juvenile, engaged in some acts that when they're 25 years old, they look back upon with laughter, like, how did I ever do that? What are we really, truly doing that really benefits? Because the orange is indeed the new black, and black as in financial profit. That's why the orange is the new black. It's a financial game. So it's like we're still trying to leave the door open. No more than we're doing with the mugshots. Yeah, you don't allow for those to be on the Internet. That's fine. Still allow the newspapers to report it. So that if I'm an employer and I'm still looking, I'm still going to find it, right? I know for a fact when I dealt with the Kaplan Barter College situation, and these were people and students coming to us for services, and I was providing the service for free, I simply went and I went online. I didn't have to pay a company to do a background check. And that's why I knew that Barter had to know and had reason to know weeks before they issued those letters of dismissal to the students that those individuals had records, well before they allowed them to receive financial aid and then exhaust their financial aid, and now they're in a repayment status. But yet they've been dropped from the academic and the curriculum, right? So if you allow the press to say we need this information, for what purposes? If it's one of the seven deadly sins that the person's been arrested for, yes, media, you need it. They're being accused. And possibly because a police officer has successfully investigated and there may be enough evidence necessary to proceed with an arrest. But then what happened, responsibility, do you require that same media to have to monitor the status of that arrest from arrest to conviction or dismissal? Are they yet responsible for saying, if you all are going to run the story, or mention the arrest, don't you have the same responsibility to be able to go back and report the findings or the end result? That is reform. Reform isn't simply allowing the media to simply say, well, if we can't do the mugshot, we can still report the arrest. Okay, well, then why don't you report the disposition of the case? Why aren't you responsible for saying to the media, if you're going to report this, you must also follow the case and report this? And I bet you it will no longer be newsworthy. 
Or alternatively, if you're going to report, then we amend that legislation to say only the seven deadly sins is worth reporting because that's reform, isn't Oh, aren't you saying that you want people to get jobs? You want people to be considered for employment opportunities, for reentry into society? Well, if we're really committed to that, there are some real things that we can be doing. Otherwise, it's just talk. It's just lying in the pockets of a couple of friends who get to start these privatized programs, these reentry programs, drug screening, mental health, private probation, charter schools. That's what it really comes down to. The orange is the new black. It's keeping people wealthy. doesn't really sound like we're really truly doing things that's going to bring about change because you and I both know if we're really committed to change, there are things we can do to effectuate change, and it will include but it will not be limited to not simply waiting for them to get into the system before we provide a program and a service, but really building upon diversion programs to keep them out of the system, right? First offenders shouldn't simply be about you have to acknowledge your culpability, and then upon doing that, and it's in your record now, you have to actually live it out, if you will, for five to ten years, and then reap a benefit, whatever that's supposed to be. First offenders is, guess what? This is your first arrest. We're going to just not acknowledge that it ever happened, if it's not the seven deadly sins. You complete this program, and we actually hold it in abeyance, you complete these diversion programs. Once you submit documentation to substantiate that you have successfully completed these programs, we actually eradicate it. This arrest, this conviction never transpired. The first offenders program is not working. You still have to report that you've been arrested. You still have to report that you've been convicted. I've worked that on too many occasions for too many people. It's not an effective program. We say it's first offenders, but the adverse effects and the collateral consequences is no different than a person who's never had first offenders. It's no different than a person who's been arrested and convicted. You still have to report. The mandate in reporting is what? We work. These are individuals who cannot attain employment opportunities because they can't get past the application. Why? Because of the mandatory reporting. So even where you say ban the box, if I pull the background and it still appears on the GCIC or NCIC, then what did we really accomplish? We've accomplished nothing. And if we're not accomplishing anything, then we're not reforming. And if we're not reforming, then we're wasting time. And if we're wasting time, then it's all a lie. And if it's all a lie, then no one should be subject to any type of funding, re-election, Nothing at all. We'll be back. Good joining Sherry on Live with Sherry as we work toward concluding this episode on Georgia opens its first prison charter school and the aftermath of the Atlanta public school cheating scandal. Allow me to address the latter. I believe in light of the convictions that were handed down in the Atlanta public school cheating scandal that what we can do as a city, as a state, is offered to other teachers and administrators the same financial incentives that they were being offered to pass or allow for students to pass these standardized exams and do that to be whistleblowers. So that if you are a teacher, an educator, or an administrator, and you are aware of these types of 
issues transpiring in your school districts, be it in Atlanta or any other school, compensate the whistleblowers. But not where you have a system that says we're going to do it after the fact. Here are the names. These are where they are. This is what they're doing. Here. We do that with giving tips. So if you give a tip, then your tip ought to be beneficial. Yes, you're going to be encouraging these individuals to bring down that wall or break that wall of silence. But we need to because for every student who is the victim of an educator who forgot his or her commitment to the field of education by allowing these students to be victims of cheating, we've already failed them. And it's going to cost you money anyway. So you either pay the 18000 up front to educate a student or the tens of thousands of what it costs to give a bed to house them in the prison system. Thank you for joining me on BTR. This is Sherry on Live with Sherry.